and we're live. Hello, my name is Rachel Barenbaum. I'm the author of A Bend in the Stars and the forthcoming novel, Atomic Anna. And today I'm so excited, so, so excited to have Zoraida Cordova here on my show to welcome her and her amazing, amazing, amazing adult, finally, right? <laughs> Uh, magical realism debut. She's written dozens and dozens of novels. I'm going to tell you about her, but this one is amazing. The Inheritance of Arcadia Divina. It is so good. I cannot tell you how much I love this book. Look at this gorgeous cover. All right, so let's hear about my guest. Zoraida Cordova is the acclaimed author of more than a dozen novels and short stories, including the Brooklyn Brujas series and Star Wars, Galaxy's Edge, A Crash of Fate. In addition to writing novels, she serves on the board of We Need Diverse Books, is the co-editor of the best-selling anthology Vampires Never Get Old, and co-hosts the writing podcast Deadline City. She writes romance novels as Zoe Castile. Zoraida was born in Guayaquil, Ecuador, and calls New York City home. When she's not working, she's roaming the world in search of magical stories. I love that. And I want to apologize if I butcher any Spanish pronunciations because I don't speak Spanish, although I'm a lover of other languages and Spanish. But in any case, please tell me, what is your amazing book about? A short, your elevator pitch. What's it about? My elevator pitch is that The Inheritance of Rikita Divina is about a woman who invites her family to witness her death. Uh, and claim their inheritance. And seven years later, uh, after she has passed, her her descendants, three of her descendants, uh, have to figure out why their family is being killed off one by one. And they return to Ecuador, to Guayaquil, Ecuador, to understand what their why their grandmother was the way she was. Why did she give them this power? What does it mean? And uh, who is next? And so... Uh, it's sort of my homage to uh, the stories that I wanted to read when I was younger. I love it. Right. Who's next is sort of the big question, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you start the book by explaining um, Orcadia is born um, and she sort of gets stuck on her way coming out of her mother, right? And so she has one foot in, one foot out of the womb. And that's sort of how she lives her life. One foot in, one foot out of magic. Um, and I would love to hear you talk about that because that sort of is the premise for so many characters for her family for this book. Yeah, I think that there, I feel like for, for immigrant children or for people of diaspora, uh, the idea of having one foot in and ha one foot out, one foot there and one foot somewhere else is really prevalent. Um, in Spanish, it's called uh, ni de aquí ni de allá, which means neither from here and neither from there. And sort of it's this place of, of not belonging or straddling the idea of belonging to a thing when the answer should really be you could just belong to both of them. But for some reason, whether it's a social reason or an economic reason, you can't you can't always belong to it. So it, it, that idea, I feel like. I don't, I never wanted to write a book about immigration. I am an immigrant, but I also think that like, that the narrative for Latin people from Latin America is always the same one, right? It's a sad immigrant story um, uh, at a border. And, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write a magical story. And so for me, the idea of, of bridging, of bridging two places at once came through the magic. And so that became, that became that allegory or metaphor. 
I absolutely love that. And I'm so glad you dove right into that um, because I know from my own experience, right, um, I, uh, experience with Hebrew and living in Israel, I had many experiences where even though my, I might have understood the words in a situation or been able to translate the strict words, right, there was sort of an essence that was missing. And right, so you, there's not always a direct translation for everything that's happening. And I feel like I saw that in your characters in this book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So can you, I mean, how did you deal with that? Because it seems like I could imagine that in your head, right, you're, you're there, you were struggling to translate some ideas maybe that are, that are in a different, like a feel, it's not even a language, right? It's not words. And to try to put that into um, English for English readers. Did you have to struggle with that? I, I don't think so. I, I, you know, in my mind, I didn't actually use a lot of Spanish, but, um, wow. I, I feel, <laughs> That's uh, yeah, because I think that the names are in Spanish and there's like a couple of phrases, uh, but, you know, I think it would be maybe 1% of the text. Um, but I think that when you see words that you don't recognize on the page, um, they just become so much more, they, they stand out so much more, I think. Uh, but then again, I should probably just ask my publisher for like a word count and see. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, I, I think that I, I look at my, some of my cousins who don't speak, like they don't speak Spanish as well, or um, people who grew up. Sometimes you, I have friends who are from other countries and they just stopped speaking their mother tongue, their, you know, their, their maternal language, because when they came here, they went to school and they got made fun of and they just stopped speaking it because you know, it is a very xenophobic, like we, we have a very xenophobic look at the world in some places. And so you just grow up not understanding something that was part of you at the very beginning. And that's really interesting and, and strange. Um, the story of the Montoya family in The Inheritance of Rikita Divina is about a family that uh, they are now three generations in, in the United States. And so um, not all families that are that many generations in speak their original language, right? Like how many Italian families still speak Italian and how many uh, Irish American families still speak Irish. And so that sort of because like that is, isn't something that we always ask of, of white people, but maybe like for Latinos, it's like, why don't, well, why don't you speak this? Right. Like we're, we're almost like supposed to hold on to this a little bit longer. Um, but all experiences are unique and like, we can't look at families and say like, you're not like all these other families. So you're not an Ecuadorian family. And, and so it's, you know, it's a story of one family in one place, uh, out of millions. And so it just, uh, I just write, as honestly as I can for these characters and hope that the meaning and the understanding and the way that the readers will interpret it, like they will get there on their own. I love that. I love that. And um, sort of closely related to that is you bring in monsters. Um, you, know, you have a river monster early on, right? And a lot of um, uh, references to monsters, different kinds of monsters in the house and their lives. Um, can you talk about that too? And does that relate to this, you know, straddling the two cultures, the one leg in, one leg out? Well, the river monster specifically is sort of, when I was little, 
I grew up, my, the neighborhood that I, I grew up in is the same neighborhood that Arcadia is born in. Yeah. Um, my grandmother sort of like founded this one neighborhood street, right? Like her family moved there and then other families started moving there. And, and it was, it was somewhere that like was really industrial before that. Um, it was like a, there were, it was, I think it was a, it used to be a shipping yard or where they used to make ship parts. Um, and it's right by the river. And, and so she used to tell me the story of, um, of like a spirit that lived in the river and that her grandfather dealt with. And, and so for me, I, I, because I'm a fantasy writer, I made it literal <laughs> and I created this river monster that has been there before the Spanish, before the Incas even arrived, right? Because the Inca came and, and colonized uh, other like smaller indigenous tribes. And so um, back when it was the, the Huancavilcas, which was another, uh, another group in that basin of, of Guayaquil. Um, so like here, and then before that, right, there's like pre-Columbian, pre-Columbian peoples that were there. Uh, and so I wanted this river monster to symbolize sort of like the, the really long, uh, almost origin of this of this country, uh, of this place, and how it's changed, and 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 Orchidia herself, the only way that she can belong is like is by returning to nature, and so a lot of this book is sort of this return, return to nature. Yes, I love that scene. <laughs> I don't want to give any spoilers, but there is an amazing <laughs> scene for her return to nature. Yeah, um, I love that scene. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, but, you know, I couldn't help thinking there, um, you know, this idea of, you know, making a deal with the devil, right? Um, another book recently that came out that sort of is a little similar, um, Victoria Schwab's, right, Addie LaRue. Um, a little different, but this idea of making a deal with another power comes out. And I love that sort of fairy tale element to it. Do you draw a lot on fairy tales and really, you know, sort of from your past, from your childhood? Uh, no, uh, so, you know, like, I think that we grew up with the same sort of translated fairy tales, right? The fairy tales of, uh, the Grimm's fairy tales, of course, have been translated into so many languages. Um, I don't know if I necessarily draw from fairy tale, but I do try to draw from, uh, from archetype, right? So story archetypes, um, the hero, the villain, the, the savior, uh, these sort of big picture characters, uh, and try to figure out how they belong in a modern setting and how do they belong in the specific story that I want to tell. Um, and so I, I think that I, I pull from that for sure. That's, a, that's one of the reasons I love Star Wars, right? Because it, it is all archetypes. Yeah. I can't wait to talk to you about Star Wars, but I want to stick to the book for a little longer because sure, sure. Um, <laughs> I just want to share. Yeah. Because that's like amazing. I've never interviewed someone who also writes for Star Wars. Um, okay. So uh, I just want to read a couple of very short passages in the first few pages to just um, so that listeners get a sense of how gorgeous your language is, right? And, and what really drew me in, particularly, right, from page two, I think. Um, is when you talk about four rivers was special for reasons the living population had all but forgotten. It was in the most general sense, magic adjacent. There are locations all over the world where power is so concentrated that it becomes the meeting ground for good and evil. Call them nexuses, call them ley lines, call them Eden. 
Over the centuries, as Four Rivers lost its water sources, its magic faded too, leaving only a weak pulse beneath its dry mountains and plains. That pulse was enough. So what a beautiful way to introduce Four Rivers. How did you come to Four Rivers in your, Four Rivers in your head, in your own mind? Well, in four, four, I wanted a place that was a, a sanctuary, right? And I, so I think when I was creating uh, Arcadia's Running Away from some, something, somebody, um, mm -hmm. which we find out at the very, very, very end of the book. Right. Um, right. And uh, I, I wanted the first glimpse of this character to be her arriving at this place. Uh, a place where before she arrives, there's nothing there. And her pure arrival revives the land, right? And 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 gives sort of like a rebirth to this valley because it is her rebirth, right? She's, she's starting a brand new life uh, in this place. And so there's valley, there's a lake, there's animals, dragonflies. She has like an immortal zombie rooster that is always with her <laughs> named Gabo. Um, How many times did he die? <laughs> he's died quite a few times. He's died more times than I can count. I think yeah. because I killed I killed him I killed him more times in the book, and then I kept changing it a little bit. So I'm oh, it, it's unclear. Saying. It's unclear, but but he's you know mm -hmm. now he's he's a spirit with her, um, and and so Four Rivers was because I think that. Um, Eden is also called Four Rivers, right? The meeting of the Four Rivers. Uh, and so it, I wanted this to be her paradise. Um, and, and it came to me as just sort of a refuge, um, a place where the things that she needs appears because she will never be without. And, and that's sort of, that's also the price of her magic. So, yeah. Oh my God. I love that. Okay. So um, what you, your writing was very powerful because you have um, Orchidia is, you know, sort of the magic figure. And then she has this huge, enormous family tree of descendants who um, basically don't have the same magic. And you seem to even switch the way you write when you're writing about these sort of magic adjacent characters versus, mm -hmm. right, Orchidia herself. And I just want to yeah. read this other passage. We're a little further on to illustrate this. Um, so uh, this one character's name is Tatanelli, and you say that she's very plain, right? About, mm -hmm. I mean, her appearance is not plain, but she everything about her is normal. She was even born in a hospital, right? <laughs> Unlike the other members of the family. And then um, you wrote, when she met Michael Sullivan's family, this becomes her husband, she realized they didn't have remedies or languages. They spoke only in private. Everything the Sullivans ate came from a can or a frozen bag. They didn't use salt on anything except a pinch in their food. They didn't suck the marrow from their chicken bones for health. They didn't have stories of ghosts or duendes or cuckoos hidden underneath the bed. Their grandmothers lived far away in old people homes. And though he had cousins, Mike could go his whole life without, without ever seeing another Sullivan and be all right with it. And then you write, Tatanelli was starting to make herself fit into Mike's family because he had been so good to her and he loved her so much. And then just a few sentences later, you have, I'll be right back, she said. When she touched the wall, a rose petal fluttered under her fingertip. Right, so there we have such a sort of boring, normal woman. And yet 
she touches the wallpaper and it flutters. And it's those tiny little touches of magic that you imbue while also doing normal characters that was really, I thought, brilliant. So were you consciously writing in a different voice when you did these unmagical characters, sort of? Well, I had to, you know, because I have, I, I, the, the points of views of Tatinelli, Marimar, and Ray didn't, weren't there originally. Right, what? it was sort of the story of, of like, uh, of the family, um, and and then my editor was like, "We're missing something." And I was like, "You're right." So then I, I expanded just, that. Like, blew my mind that they weren't there in the beginning. Yeah, like oh they, because I mean, they existed, but it was you know, it was being told. Um, I didn't go back and forth between them. It was just Marimar, right? right. And and then okay. and so I, I went back in and I I put Tatinelli's point of view and I put Ray's point of view. And I also added the flashbacks to Orchidia because we those flashbacks were also originally not there. Um, but we needed to sort of see her journey as her family is searching for her journey. Um and 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 I so the struggle for me was was making sure that every character had its own voice because they're so different from each other and they're so different from their grandmother, but it's still all told in third person. So I can I could have I had that creative liberty. Yeah. So how did you do it? Like how did you add them in? How'd you get your mind there? I mean, I just when I do character work, I figure out who they are. And, and what they need to say. And then I just, it's sort of like, I guess it's the writer's version of, um, of that acting where you like, where you like become the character, what's it called? Um, <laughs> it could probably oh, right. be method acting. Yeah, it's like method writing, you know, just mm -hmm. like I'm in this character's mind and this is what they would say and this is how they would act and um, because you sort of have to separate yourself. Like it's not, it's not about you. It's not about what you would say. It's not about what you would do. It's about what they, how they would react to something happening in this family. And so Bethanelli just has a naturally softer voice, right? More appeasing. Um, she wants everyone to get along and Ray is just chaotic. And he's like the epitome. I, I love his character the most. Um, but he's just like a chaos kitten, right? He's like, I'm going to say stupid things and I'm going to just not care if I offend my family because I'm not going to see them in for another two years. And, and I'm just going to sit here and get drunk and, and make snarky <laughs> comments. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, why, who doesn't love being that person at the family reunion? Um, and Maddie Matt is just angsting, right? Cause mm -hmm. she's just angry at the world. Yeah. I love that. So um, I love that you added them later. And then their names, Marimar in particular, um, you talk about how um, right their names were important and also mostly misunderstood because it was Mar y Mar, right? As and other people, you know, understood it differently. Can you talk about naming the characters and how, how you thought about that? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I, I think that I just search for the meaning of names before I um, search for the meaning of names before I name a character. Um, I I will change a character's name on throughout a chapter, throughout an entire book until I land on one that feels right. I love uh, that. For these, <laughs> for these characters in particular, um, 
I named Marimar's name was Marimar because it was my favorite soap opera when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, The soap opera was called Marimar. (laughs) And um, it means Maria of the sea. Right. Um, But I, I needed it to mean something different and I envisioned it as meaning something different. So Mar, Imar, Sea, and Sea. Mm-hmm. And and so like ocean and ocean, right? Um, and so I I stuck to that. And Ray's name was originally Chewy in a different version of this book. Um, but then I didn't like the way that's it didn't fit him as I kept writing him. Um, and Tatinelli's name was always Tatinelli. And and it's just that's just like a mashup name of of um uh of a of a couple girls that I went to to school with and they sort of reminded me of this character. And so I was like, Oh, let's just, let's just do that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, I mean, what a big swath of character names you had to come up with too. Oh my God. There are a lot of them. I mean, I pulled a lot from family names, right? So I have like, I have my cousin's name is Gaston and Bolivar and, uh, and so there, yeah, like most, a lot of the characters names are, are, are even, even like some of the last names are after my grandmother. So yeah. I love it. I love it. Okay. So I want to just ask you about Star Wars because I know people listening are like dying to know, Margaret in particular. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, you write for Star Wars too. Please tell us, what do you do with Star Wars? Um. So at Star Wars, I so uh, the very first thing that I wrote for Star Wars, I'm actually wearing my Princess Leia t-shirt. Um, Amazing. <laughs> Um, so the first thing I wrote for Star Wars was a short story in the anthology from a certain point of view, uh, A New Hope. And when literally, I feel like the way that I got asked to write for Star Wars is because I was thirst tweeting Poe Dameron uh, on Twitter, obviously. So sometimes good things come from Twitter. <laughs> and I, I posted something like, I wish I could write Poe Dameron kissing his way through the galaxy. I definitely didn't say kissing. But um Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, and then the next day, I get an email for, uh, through my agent uh, from an editor at Lucasfilm Publishing saying like, hey, here's a ride as a Star Wars fan. Would you want to write for this anthology? And I was like, yeah. How much of my DNA <laughs> do you need? Do you need a blood sample? Do you need, what do you need? <laughs> right. And so um, I wrote a short story about the Tonica sisters and um, who you know, it, from a certain point of view, is such a cool anthology because a series, because you're writing, oh, my hair is everywhere. You're writing from a character that is not, you know, one of the big three or big four, I guess, if you count uh, Darth. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and so you're writing from all of these other characters points of views. And so you see how, like what's happening in the background, like what's going on. And, and so I think that, um, that was such an amazing experience. And then because I had written that a couple, like a year later, they tapped me for uh, the novel, A Crash of Fate, which is uh, tied to the theme parks, the so Galaxy's Edge Batu, And they asked if I would be interested in writing a romance, uh, like a teen romance set love oh my story. God. I'm trying to imagine like, what is this phone call like when your agent calls or, you know, and they're like, so I, it, it, it was, a, it was a DM. It was a DM. Oh, <laughs> my yeah. Editor, editor, yeah. <laughs> uh, so literally Twitter has been good to me in some ways. <laughs> That's um, amazing. Yeah. And so she, so, you know, r- a love story for star Wars. I said, absolutely. 
Um, and so I wrote a friends, a friends to lovers, I guess it was my favorite trope. Uh, and it's a love story set in like 24 hours. So it's very, very fast. Um, and that I got to go to the opening of Galaxy's Edge. It was the Whoa. coolest experience. Uh, and I got to share it with some of the other writers who write for Galaxy's Edge, like Delilah Dawson um, and um, Ethan Sachs and Will Sliney. And so the four of us were just like little kids in like a giant candy <laughs> store. Like, are you serious? Is this real life? Is this really about us? That's amazing. So, so it was the coolest thing I've done in my life. And I, I've also contributed to two other anthologies since then. So more coming. They're already out. So it's from a certain point yeah. of view, Empire Strikes Back. And I got to write from Boba Fett's point of view. It's and so John cool. Hamm reads the audiobook. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so I have a recording of John Hamm saying my name. Oh my um, God. I, I, I wish I could I, I figure out how to make it my uh, voicemail. Like you have reached Zoray. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, yeah, for oh sure. God. Um, and I wrote uh, a middle grade anthology uh, with a, with uh, some other authors, ten other authors, uh, yeah. called Stories of Light and Dark. And so that one's for like the, a younger audience. Amazing. So it's, you know, I've I've I'm very lucky and fortunate that I've been able to put my stamp on my favorite galaxy. <laughs> That's amazing. But you're, the breadth of what you can write is just unbelievable. So I have to tell you, when this book arrived at my house, I put it out on our counter and my 12-year-old uh, daughter who reads voraciously like, grabbed it. And she read this book in like three days. <laughs> and so that's what I knew. I was like, I have to get in touch with Zoraida and ask her if I can interview her. Um, and then I got, and then she gave it to like three of her friends. And all of them read this book. Yeah. And like before I even was able to touch it again, it had gone around her class. And then I finally read it and I absolutely loved it. I just want to know, like, what are you thinking? Like, how do you appeal to so many audiences? Are you thinking about that? Or are you just writing the book? You're just loving your character. I think I'm just writing the book. And I, you know, my goal is to, you know, everyone online right now is talking about like not finishing books and like, you know, Twitter, 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 yelling all the time. But so I've been thinking a lot about like, what do I actually want when I, when I'm writing a book? Like, what do I, what do I expect from my reader? And so the first thing, the, the truly first thing that I want is for my reader to be entertained. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is I want them to be moved. And, and whether that's pure anger at how much they hate me or, no, or, or, abso or absolute love because they love the book, right? And so this uh -huh. is why I would rather have a one-star review than a, than a three-star review because I feel like a three-star review is like meh. But okay. at least a one-star review, I made you so angry you threw the book across the wall. <laughs> and so, <laughs> right, because like I evoke passion, right? And so right. I think that these are the two things that I'm after is entertaining and movement um, because otherwise I'm just writing for myself. And if I wanted to write you know, a, a book about lessons I would write in my diary, but I, I you can't control what people walk away, um, what they walk away with after they read your novel. So, you know, you just have to write honestly about the things that you love and have something to say. And hopefully I have something to say for a long time. I love that. You don't want to be a three. It's like, I don't want to be beige. I don't, no, I don't want to be beige. I, I have another kid who says like, I never want Pottery Barn. Because it's all beige. I always think oh my God. That. You're right. 
So you just made me think of that somehow. Oh, all right. So we're running out of time and I have, I could ask you questions for like another half hour because I'm just such a huge fan. And I thought this book was so good, but there are two questions that I ask every author because my listeners always want to know is one is they want to know what is the hardest part about writing for you? The hardest part about writing for or me. getting published or getting published, I should say. Um, okay. The hardest part about getting published is misinformation. I think that there's a lot of misinformation for new writers out there and people who have like the secret sauce to getting published or rules, you know, and I think that the, the thing that you need is you need to finish your book, right? Right. Finish your book and edit it. Okay. You don't need a fancy editor. You just need, you just need like the best book that you could have written. You see, you figure out how to write a query letter, just Google, how do I write a query letter? And there's thousands of things that will search, end up on your search bar, right? And then you, find, you, and that's how you get an agent and then you get into publishing. But I think that like we make publishing so mysterious and it doesn't have to be. Um, and, but the most important part is your, the actual words on the page. So that's, I think that would, that would be the hardest part for me. Yeah. Just sitting down and getting the the words on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And finishing. I love that. You've got to finish the book. Like you have to finish it or you're never going to publish it. Yeah. 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 And okay. So last question for you is what advice do you have for someone who's just starting out? I mean, you sort of touched that on that a little bit, but do you have any more advice? Um, I, you know, I think that you just like any industry, you want to know as much as you can. I think that um, you try to make connections along the way, but making connections is, is, is difficult when we're in a pandemic and we can't connect all the time, you know, uh, we can't go to conferences the way that we used to. Um, but you know, you just, if you jive with somebody online, like you have an honest friendship. And I think that, you know, this is a very, very small industry. So, um, I recently went out to drinks with a bunch of writers and two, one of the writers, like we ended up having the same agent six years ago and we had never met before that. And, and so it was like, Whoa. it's just such a small world. So you just want to be careful. You just want to have honest relationships and, and make sure you treat people like people. And I think that that's just, yeah, that's just the way to handle it. I have a podcast called Deadline City with uh, one of my best friends, Danielle Clayton, and we go through industry stuff all the time. So we have five seasons worth of industry stuff. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. So tune into that. And what are you working on next? What are you publishing next? I feel like you're going to tell me 12 books, (laughs) like three movies. Well, uh, (laughs) I do have my next book um, uh, for the same publisher as Arcadia for Atria. So I can't tell you what it's about yet, but it's definitely, it definitely, it's definitely weird. No, it's adult. Uh, Atria okay. is an adult publisher. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just I'm, sure I'm, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, it's definitely weird. It definitely has magic. Um, and I think that's all I can say about it. Okay. I wouldn't call it weird. I would call it unbelievable. So good. Look at this gorgeous cover. Zoraida, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing this beautiful, beautiful book. May you sell many, many copies. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for watching.